Welcome to Harvest. Uh, my name is Matt. If I have not met you, I'm the youth pastor here. Again, happy Father's Day to the dads in the room. This is my first Father's Day, which is pretty exciting. Uh, thanks. Um, and so with that, I'm going to be a stereotypical new dad and talk about my son, Bennett. Um, so Bennett loves bath time. And uh, part of his like nightly routine is to always have a bath. And we now love bath time, Kat and I, because of how much joy it is to watch Bennett love bath time so much. Like whether it's splashing in the bathtub and our dog like trying to grab the water and he's just like cracking himself up with how funny it is or like trying to stand and grab things, whatever it may be. But one time I was in charge of getting bath time going uh, for Bennett, which is always a mistake. Um, but you got to do this whole thing where the, like, there's the little kid tub and you're trying to like fill it with water and it has to be like the right rub uh, temperature and we have this rubber ducky that like tells the temperature in it. So I'm like trying to check that, sometimes trying to hold him and somehow at the same time you're supposed to be like taking his clothes off and the diaper too, but all in the right timing. So it's the right temperature, he's naked, then he's in the tub and everybody's okay, right? So, uh, so we're doing this whole thing, it's going, Bennett, fully naked, but then it's like, oh shoot, the water's still a little too hot. Hang here for a second, Bennett. So I turn my back for a second. You see where this is going. Um, and I turn back around, nothing crazy, but this is the moment of Bennett's life where he has, for one, for a while, learned that he can flip over from his back to his stomach, and he, he hates being on his back. So every time he's on his back, makes changing diapers super fun, uh, he just like swings over as fast as he can to get to his stomach, and he had just learned to crawl. So what's in his line of sight is Moses's water bowl, our dog's water bowl. And so he just starts doing the army crawl beeline to the water bowl to go and tip it over. He doesn't get there because being a dad, I'm on it always, right? I'm on it. But I run over there. I scoop him up. I'm like, whoa. But then he laughs. And here's where I make the mistake is I turn it into a game instantaneously. <laughs> I'm like, that was pretty funny. So I set him back down. Bennett starts crawling again towards the water bowl. And then I grab him at the last second and he just starts laughing. And then I start saying, I'm gonna get you. And then he's like, as I would say it over and over again, he would just burst into laughter even when he's like a mile off from the water bowl still. And it was like, at some point, he would only take a couple like crawls forward, and then I'd say, I'm going to get you, and he'd stop and just start laughing so hard. That led to another week where he ended up getting the water bowl and spilling it over because it was still a game. But um, this week, I have been thinking about God's pursuit a lot, God pursuing us, and remembering when God pursued me when I wanted nothing to do with God. And there was times in, in that season of my life where I, I could not see God's pursuit at all. Uh, I, I, I couldn't see in that moment all the ways that he was after me. But looking back now, God's presence, his voice is so palpable in that season of my life to look back and see all the ways that God used his word, that God used people, that God used his spirit to convict me so that ultimately he would get me. And now it just brings me so much joy to look back on that season of my life and that I see God saying over and over again, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue you and I'm going to win. You are going to surrender to me and it's going to produce a life of joy because you have been found. Our big idea this week, kind of like the lens to see both our passage through and a lot of the application will come out of, 
is that no one is outside of God's ability to save and are we as believers ready and willing to join him? Obviously, there will be people that ultimately do not turn to Jesus, that reject him. But over and over again, I feel like we're seeing in Acts that we see throughout the scripture that people that we would have never thought would turn to Jesus, God is after them and has been at work pursuing them in their life for years and years and years to bring them to the moment where they can choose to follow him. He's chosen us before we ever chose him. About a month ago, uh, we were in chapter 7 of Acts, and here we were introduced to a man named Saul. Saul showed up as Stephen, the first martyr in the church, is killed, and Saul is the Pharisee there that is overseeing Stephen's killing. Um, We see then from there, Saul goes on to ravage the church. He goes on to try to purge the area of Christians, to bring about this huge persecution, trying to end these people who are saying that Jesus is both Savior and Lord and the Son of God. But in that same passage, we saw that Stephen, even as he's being killed, is praying for his persecutors, praying for his murderers, and praying that the Lord would not hold their sin against them. And when I preached that passage over a month ago, I said, we are going to see Stephen's prayer answered in a really specific way in the life of Saul in the coming weeks. And we're here this morning to see that story of God's pursuit of Saul come to its climax. Last week, um, there was a story that Ron Frost took us through about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch man, and it's a story about a road where Philip is on a mission heading towards a certain town. On that road, God interrupts where he's going, what he's doing in that moment to lead to an interaction with an individual who currently does not understand the gospel. And then that person, when they are converted, when they come to know the truth, that person ultimately, through their conversion, this leads, the story ends with more and more people hearing and responding to the gospel. And this morning, we are going to see similar shades of that same story as Saul is on the road to Damascus. But what's different is that the convert seems even more unlikely than last week, that this has been someone who is an enemy of God's church And surrendering his life to Jesus is the last thing on his mind. Would you pray with me before we dive into our passage? Lord, would you help us this morning to see Christ? Would you help us, God, to remember the ways you have pursued us and you continue to pursue us? Thank you for your relentless love, Lord. Thank you that you didn't leave us where you found us. Thank you for giving us opportunity after opportunity to respond to you, to turn to you, and see Jesus as Lord and Savior. Would you help us again to see that this morning? For those of us with us that have not trusted in you, would they see Christ for the first time because of your words, because of your spirit working powerfully in them? In your name, amen. We're in Acts 9, starting at verse 1. It reads this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Where we pick up with Saul from where we last uh, left him is it starts off, Luke says, he's like breathing out these murderous threats as he is on his vendetta, on his mission to end this church. This group of people called the way, which was the name for the earliest Christians. Um, They weren't called Christians yet. They were called the way. And most people think it's because of Jesus saying that I am the way. I'm the truth, I'm the life. And so they adopted that, like we are a part of the way because Jesus is the way. And so he's after this early church to try and end them. And how Luke writes it is that it's, he's still breathing out these murderous threats. It's almost like death and murder is like oxygen to Paul, to Saul. I'll probably call him Saul and Paul multiple times throughout this passage. Um, it's like oxygen to him. It's on his very breath as he's going down this road. It's almost like Stephen's killing just wet the palate for Saul in a lot of ways. Uh, And now it's led to this mass persecution where he is ripping people from their homes, hauling them off, never to be seen again, some killed, some put in prison for the rest of their lives. And it's just a reminder to us that sin always takes us further than we ever thought it could. Maybe Saul, when Stephen was being killed, he's thinking one must die so that this thing could end. But clearly it did not end with Stephen's death, that it only, um, it only encouraged Saul to pursue more and more Christians. Sin never stays in the nice, tidy, neat box we want it to. It just leads to us justifying our desires more and more when we give into it. And now Saul is on a war path. He's on this road, he's on this mission leading to Damascus when all of a sudden a blinding light surrounds him and his companions. There's this interruption. Verse four. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This blinding light that stops Saul in his footsteps on the road is the resurrected Jesus appearing to him. Last week, it was the voice of the Spirit that interrupted Philip and said, go stand by that chariot over there. This week, who's interrupting Saul is the voice of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and he not only is speaking, but he is present there with Saul in this moment. And what he says to him is, why are you persecuting me? When Jesus first interacts with Saul, the first thing that he makes known is Jesus deeply identifies himself with his people. I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of theologians, writers say that 
It's no surprise that Paul later in his writings to other churches so often emphasizes the union between believers and Christ. Because in his own conversion story, the first thing that Jesus does is show his union between Christian and Savior. And he says it twice. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? That the persecution of God's people, Jesus so identifies with his people that actually that persecution is of him. One instance of Paul writing about this union is in Romans 6, verse 3, where he says, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin." Paul is doubling down over and over again this union, this connection between believers and their Savior. Just as Jesus died and was laid in the tomb, so anyone who believes in him, they too have died to their old way of living. They are dead to their sin. And just as Jesus raised again, so they raised to newness of life. There is deep union and connection between Jesus and his church. Church, do we view our union with Christ in that way? Do we view his union to us in that way? That Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Jesus has this deep connection with his followers. Is that how we view our walk with our Lord and our Savior? Saul doesn't know who's speaking, so he says, who are you? He's on the ground at this moment. Light is blinding him. He says, who are you that says this? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And this would have blown up all of Saul's categories in this moment. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. This isn't some random imposter saying that, oh, I'm Jesus, because he's accompanied with the glory of heaven. That there is this blinding light that radiates from his presence. This is the resurrected Jesus that Saul had gone on a mission to say, no, the one you followed was a liar. He was a blasphemer. Your church is filled with liars and blasphemers. You're against God. Jesus isn't the Savior. He isn't the Messiah. And how we know this, you claim he rose from the dead. Well, the tomb, there's still a body in there. Or the disciples, you stole the body from the tomb or you just lied about it. But if Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up to Saul in this moment, and says, I am Jesus, you're persecuting me. That means Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty and everything for Saul in this moment comes to a screeching halt because everything he's ever believed now is changing if Jesus is alive. And isn't it so true for us as well? That if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. Luke adds this detail that the companions that are there with Saul in this moment, they can't see Jesus, but they can hear the voice that's speaking. 
And this also should call us back to when Stephen is being martyred, when he's being killed, where the skies open up and he can see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, but the crowds can't see it. Luke over and over wants us to see there will be some who have spiritual eyes to see by the power of the Holy Spirit to see God, but there are others who are totally blind. Jesus sends Saul to Damascus with the assurance that he'll be told what to do next. Can you imagine? Your world just gets completely obliterated. You see resurrected Jesus face to face, and then he doesn't just stay with you and tell you everything you need to do next. All he says is, go to Damascus, I'll tell you what to do from there. Unreal. And to make matters even more tricky, as the blinding light fades and Saul is there with his companions, his eyes are still open, but he cannot see. He's blind because of this interaction with Jesus. And I think that what God's doing here is the spiritual reality that Saul has been in his whole life. God is now giving him that spiritual reality as a physical reality that he's living with for these three days. That the blindness he's had spiritually his whole life now is his physical reality to show him this is how blind you truly have been. But I'm going to show you what it truly means to see going forward. Saul clearly is devastated. He's rocked. He's beside himself. He's probably got so many questions. But all Luke tells us is that he fasts from food and water for three days while he's most likely contemplating, wrestling. Who knows if he's just silent, bewildered by this interaction. But we do know that he's praying. He's seeking God in the midst of this, probably waiting for God to say, what, what's next? What do I do now that my world has just been torn apart? Verse 10. In Damascus, we pause for a second, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. We're introduced to Ananias, and all we know about Ananias is that he's a disciple of Jesus. There's no resume of Ananias that is awesome of how many people he's led to Jesus, how many times he's done a sermon, any healings or miracles like we've seen with Philip or that we've seen with Stephen in the past. All we know about Ananias is he is a disciple. And it seems to be that any time we're in the midst of a story where someone is coming to trust in Jesus, God is bringing his disciples to be in the midst of that story. God tells him about Saul. There's this man, Saul from Tarsus, who's in Damascus. And the second he probably says Tarsus, like it's like ding, 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 ding for Ananias. He's like, I've heard about Saul from Tarsus. And then God goes on to say, he's already had a vision as he's praying now, where a man named Ananias comes in, lays his hands on him, and restores his sight. It's almost, I don't know God's tone in this moment, but I imagine God being like, are you catching my drift, Ananias, what's about to happen? 
as Ananias is putting two and two together. A man named Ananias is going to go, that's me. Oh, no. And yet, for Ananias, as he hears this, this probably sounds like a death sentence because he knows Saul's reputation. Verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show you how much he must suffer for my name. Has there ever been someone in your life where you've doubted God's ability to save them? Or maybe you're not doubting God and his ability to work, but you doubt that God could ever use you to display Christ to them in your life because that person's just too far gone and you don't have the words. Their lifestyle will never change. They're too woke, they're too conservative. They've done too much evil. They're too prideful. They'll never humble themselves before Jesus. You just can't picture them even following Jesus. Like, what would that even look like? Ananias knows what Saul has done. He knows what Saul represents. He knows what he's capable of. And potentially, he's even known some of the people that Saul has hurt and Saul has displaced. So he says to God in a summarization, God, are you sure you know what you're doing? Which, what a relatable question that we too often ask God. God, are you sure that you want me to do that? Are you sure you want me to let go of this? God, are you sure you want me to talk to them? God, are you sure you want me to invite them into my home? God, are you sure you want me to leave this job and to pursue this and said, God, are you sure? And here we see that God doesn't meet Ananias with a rebuke, but instead he tells him, go, I have chosen him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, to my people Israel, and his ministry will be marked with suffering, I will show you how much he will suffer for my name. In God's mercy and his grace, he's chosen Saul. And what Saul has done, the state of Saul's heart cannot deter God's pursuit of him. He's going to get him. Later, Paul talks about how thankful he is for his suffering for Christ because of how it's advanced the gospel. What a reversal. Like God says to Ananias, I'll show you how much he has to suffer for my name. And later, it's those very sufferings that Paul is thankful for God giving him. Similar to the the disciples in Acts who are brought in and flogged for what they've been saying about Jesus. But when they're leaving the scene, they're rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer on behalf of the gospel. And I can only imagine in this moment, because for whatever reason, it's after God says, he's my instrument, he's my tool, I'm going to use him to spread the gospel, he's going to suffer for my name, that this shifts for Ananias at least to the point where he's like, okay, I will obey. Maybe I don't understand it, but I will obey. 
Because if God can take someone who's caused Christians so much hurt and so much suffering and change him to be someone who joyfully suffers for Christ, then God must be doing something far greater, far grander than anything I could ever imagine. For whatever reason that Ananias comes to, we see, even though he may still have fears, he may be praying the whole way to Judas's house before he sees Saul, he obeys and responds to God. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God of God. It was unclear when God first gives Ananias these instructions to go to Saul if like God had like clued him in to like what had happened with Saul on the road to Damascus. But here we see that God clearly either in this moment by the Holy Spirit is giving Ananias more of the story or he clued him in at an earlier point because it's clear that Ananias now has a bigger picture of how God has been pursuing Saul up to this moment and that Ananias' interaction with Saul is just another moment of God's pursuit. It's not the first and it won't be the last. When we are seeking to share the gospel with someone, with our lives, with our words, it is always good to remember that God has been at work in that person's life far longer than the moment that we're entering into. It's good to remember that God has been pursuing that person far longer than you have been pursuing them. That we are joining him where he's already working. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch last week that when Philip comes up to the chariot, he hears him reading Isaiah 53, and we find out that he had come there to worship God in Jerusalem. God clearly had been after this man far before Philip ever interacted with him. So that means that the houseless person you're trying to gather the courage to have a conversation with as you offer them a meal or you ask to pray for them or if there's anything you can pray for, that God of, the God of the universe has been actively pursuing that individual far longer than the moment that you're just stepping into right then and there. That your friend who has shown no interest in faith and evenly has openly rejected um, any conversations of faith that you've had with them, we can only begin to imagine the ways that God has shown his love to that individual throughout their lifetime, even though maybe they have never seen it. Your child who has walked away from the faith or never believed And even now, as you look back, maybe you have regrets about how you handled that relationship. God has limitless resources when it comes to bringing in other believers into your son or daughter's life to display Christ to them. 
And for me, as a kid who grew up in a Christian home, who walked away from Jesus, a word of encouragement to parents in the room here who feel like they're on an island trying to share the gospel with their kids who have walked away. As I look at God's pursuit of me, let me just tell you, he's so good. He used situation after situation, person after person, broken decision after broken decision I made to ultimately bring me to my knees before Jesus. And isn't that true for each and every single one of us in this room who has believed in Christ? As you look back at your own story and see God's pursuit of you, think back to all the ways where his relentless pursuit and love just covers your life. The family you were born into, that church you got invited to, that youth group you got invited to, that camp you went to, that conversation at the coffee shop where everything shifted, that that book that you read, that passage of scripture that just kept eating at you in the back of your mind that bad decision you made that led you to the end of yourself, has not God pursued us in such a way where he's used everything at his disposal to bring us to Jesus? And would he not do the same thing for your kids, for your friends, for your coworkers? If you have not trusted in Jesus for you this morning, and it is hard to not know who ultimately will respond and be saved. It is really hard to, to not be able to see all of that. But brothers and sisters, what we can take heart in this morning is that God is a relentless pursuer of broken people. And he gives opportunity after opportunity. He extends his love over and over and over again so that people might believe and we can trust that he is good. Ananias comes to Saul, puts his hands on him, and greets him as a brother. And says, God has sent me here to heal you of your blindness. But more importantly than that, for you to receive the Holy Spirit. We don't get all the details, but somewhere in Paul's processing, his praying, his wrestling, in those days he's fasting, he has put his trust in Jesus. He has given his life to the Lord. And now, as scales fall from his eyes, as he receives his sight again, his physical state represents and reflects his spiritual state as well because Saul has now seen Jesus for who he is and he can truly see for the first time. I can only imagine him pouring over the scrolls, over the scriptures that he had grown up his whole life seeking to know, to memorize, to teach to others. And now for the first time, he is seeing them point to Jesus over and over and over again. And that should be true for us as well. And it is a lifetime. But because of the Holy Spirit in God's people, the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus where we see him in scripture, where otherwise we would have been totally blind. And just like the Ethiopian in the passage last week, his immediate response is to be baptized. 
which, oh my gosh, what a moment for either Ananias or the other disciples that are in Damascus there as like Saul, this Pharisee they once feared, now is publicly displaying before them or others that might be gathered there that he now is dead to his old way of living and now he is being raised with Christ. He's already living into this this drama of our union with Christ because of what he's done and these disciples that once were afraid this man might kill them, they are now lowering him into the water and raising him out again and rejoicing together. So if you're here, you believe in Jesus, you've received his Holy Spirit, but you haven't been baptized. While baptism is not essential in the sense of it brings salvation about in your life, that's only through Jesus, Baptism is essential for the testimony that comes with it and being obedient to Jesus to declare to the world, to declare to your community, to declare to your family, to declare even to your own spirit that God has sealed me. God has saved me. I too have gone from death to life and I want the world to know it. So if that's you, get baptized because it's just an awesome story that we get to live out and say, yes, Jesus, I'm all in too. We don't just baptize people on Easter or Christmas. Like anyone that wants to be baptized, talk to any of the staff or elders here. We would love to set up a pool next week, just throw a wrench into the plans because of baptisms. If that's you, even if you started following Jesus 30 years ago and you're like, that's a little embarrassing now to be dunked because I've been following him so long and never, no. Like we wanna celebrate the truth of what God has done in your testimony and declare that he is the only one that can save. Saul the Pharisee then sits under the teaching of the disciples in Damascus. And can you imagine those Bible studies? Like, oh my gosh, how nervous some of those people still might be. They're like, we've never done this with a Pharisee before. Like, <laughs> and yet we see that he, he is humble in this. Like he wants to learn. He wants to grow. And Saul, who we began the passage who was breathing out murderous threats. At the end of our passage, he is now breathing out gospel truth in the same places where he once declared one way of living and one truth. Now he's in the synagogues again, and he's saying that Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord, and he is Messiah. When God saves, he redeems. He truly brings about a miracle of death to life. And we never hear about Ananias again. And just like most of us in the room have no idea who brought Tim Keller to faith, have no idea who led Martin Luther to faith or Martin Luther King Jr. to faith or Joni Erickson Tata or Corey Ten Boom or Billy Graham. We don't know who led them to Jesus. Maybe some of you do if you're like super nerd in that way. More power to you. I'm just not there. Um, but God has not only chosen the Tim Kellers of the world or even the Greg Goose Trees of the world to lead people to Christ. He's chosen people like Ananias, where all we know about him is that he's a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're someone who prefers being more behind the scenes. That's great. You don't need to be an extrovert to lead people to Jesus. 
Ananias, even though he was filled with trepidation at the beginning, he ultimately was obedient. He was ready. He was willing to do what God asked him, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. God loves to use people who like to be behind the scenes to bring about kingdom work that can't be explained other than that our God is an awesome God who will be glorified. I want to end um, by inviting up the worship team, and I want to give us something to practice, something, something to do with this. Maybe there's pieces of application from this passage along the way where you're already like, God, would you help me in this? Or God, would you remind me of this? But on, on your chair this morning, there is a little piece of paper and a pen, and it says, is there someone um, who you have struggled to trust in God's ability to save? And um, I want to just give us some time this morning to pray in this first song, to pray for that person, to think of a name, and either to write down that prayer or to silently pray for that person. Uh, and maybe for some of you here, that person might be you, that you have not believed and you feel like you're at a spot in your life where you can't be saved. You're too far gone. You've done too much that is anti-Jesus to now God bring you back around to seeing him for who he is and truly to make you a new creation. So we'll take time to write and to pray um, in those ways. But also, uh, Kevin and Sid, would you guys wave for me? They're both over on this side of the room. They're going to be in the left part of this hallway right outside of the cafe. And if the, praying this, writing this, or even silently praying is a struggle for you to pray for this person in any way, they want to pray with you. There's some times in my life where I have no words because the pain is too real. And all you need to do is go in there and say, will you pray for my mom? Will you pray for my friend? Will you pray for me? And they would love to pray with you this morning. Especially if you're here and that person's you, please go back and pray with them or don't leave this morning before you talk to someone. We would love to pray with you. We would love to point you to Jesus and have a conversation about where you're at. The goal of this is not some name it and claim it where, God, I know now you're going to save this person. But the goal is to increase our trust in his ability to save no matter how bleak it may seem. We do not know who God will save, who he will choose, but we can trust that he is good and a God who pursues broken people. The goal is to increase our prayers because of our confidence in God's relentless pursuing love. Let's flood this time with prayer as the band leads us in a song of worship.